Last week after my sermon, I uh, was talking with my dad at our Connect group, and he gave me an illustration that I had failed to use and kind of looked at me like I was dumb for not saying it. But we're doing this series on Jesus, and we've been kind of talking about the backstory of Jesus and how uh, really when you understand who Jesus was, who Jesus is before and away from kind of all the... the uh, famous stuff, before his public ministry, before he became Jesus Christ superstar, before he had done his miracles, before everybody was following him around the countryside. When you really start to get that story, you start to kind of meet Jesus, and you start to like Jesus more. We've kind of been operating from this premise that that everybody uh, that that believes in Jesus and loves Jesus uh, likes Jesus more when they really get to know Jesus more. And the illustration that, that my dad gave me, and it was a good one, is the Olympics. And a lot of times in the Olympics, we have, we have these sports that Americans don't care about, like the luge. Kate, I don't know why that's right there, but will you just hold it up for me? Will you hand me that, actually? So, like, we have the luge, nice, uh, which is kind of like this, right? It's kind of like sledding on a, a really fast hill. And, and all of a sudden, it's like the Olympics come, and NBC is like, how are we going to get people to care about this sport that they haven't cared about all year? I mean, pretty much they've watched football, basketball, and baseball, and a little bit of hockey, and for those less American people, soccer. Um, that's two weeks in a row I've got a soccer coming into a sermon, so I'm feeling pretty good. But like, how are we going to get sledding to be like a sport people want to watch on TV when they could go do it in their backyard? And, and so you, you know this. This is, this is what makes Bob Costas the legend that he is. Bob Costas and his Bob Costas-ish voice gets on there, and he tells you all about these people's lives. Now, here, just let me give you a great example um, Whenever you see Jamaica in bobsledding, don't you care a little bit, right? Don't you just kind of go, go Jamaica, man, you know, like who cares about the USA in this event? This is a Jamaican sport. Uh, And it's because Jamaica has a bobsled team, and we saw the movie Cool Runnings, if you were trying to search your memory bank for what that that was. And all of a sudden, because of things like they made a movie out of one team, but when they tell you these stories, all of a sudden, you feel yourself caring about the sport, not to mention the people that are participating in the sport. And I think that as we look at Jesus' backstory, it's maybe like the cool runnings of his life. Just like if you skip right to his death, Jesus died, he rose again, great. It's hard to really connect with Jesus. It's hard to, I mean, it's, it's hard to, to really like Jesus, to know Jesus, to feel strongly about Jesus. You can believe in Jesus, you can, you can uh, have a mental understanding of what Jesus has done. You can tell the gospel to other people. But if you don't know some of the backstory before he died, then he's just a guy to you. I mean, think about it this way. Think about like when stuff is disconnected from you. You hear about tragic things that have happened in the world. And they can be big tragedies. But really, you don't go and cry and, you know, sit in your room and... and Be sad about it for a long time. But when somebody whose backstory you know, who you like, who you've hung out with, who you understand is hurt or gets sick or dies or whatever it might be, it it really hurts you. 
And I think that one of the problems when we, when we have this, this kind of Christianity that just jumps to the end is that we really, we really aren't that excited about Jesus. And, and even when we talk or sing about him dying, I mean, we sing that in songs and rising again like we just sang, which was a song change, and I didn't know that was coming, and so that was kind of fun for me too. I like not knowing the songs, but I do every week. And sometimes we try to get Michael to do the clap thing because uh, nobody wants that job on stage because if nobody claps, then you're just this guy, you know, <laughs> Like, that's no good at all. Uh, but Michael did that on his own today. I didn't even pay him or anything. Um, and when we talk about those things, sometimes they're just void of energy. They're void of passion. They're void of excitement because we don't really know Jesus. And today I want to look at one of the defining moments in Jesus' life. Defining moments, I think, tell a lot about a person. When they do the specials on the Olympics, when they make movies about people, they don't, they don't tell you every aspect of their life. I mean, that wouldn't be a very good movie, right? Like, you know, and then he was born, and then he took his first step, and then he said his first word, and then he got in his first uh, time out. And nobody would like that movie. Nobody would care about the Olympian. They'd just be like, I'm turning the channel, you know. And Jesus has some defining moments in his life. And those are what get recorded for us in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible. The Gospel writers even tell us that Jesus did more cool stuff than is recorded, but there are like some defining moments. And today, I want to look at a defining moment, one of the few that we really have, a defining moment before Jesus was famous, before his public ministry started. And I think as we look at this defining moment in Jesus' life, it's going to call us to kind of a defining moment in our own lives. An unknown author said, there are those defining moments that either make you who you are or show you who you are. And I think for Jesus, this is one of those moments. It didn't change who he was because Jesus, we believe, is eternal and has been around and forever and has always been the second person and the Trinitarian God that we love and follow as Christians. But this is a moment where Jesus sees who he is and where the world gets really one of its first big glimpses of just who he is and what he's going to accomplish. And I think it's one of those defining moments. Luke 3, we'll start in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and Trechonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That was wordy and boring right there. Uh, but here's what Luke wants you to know. And we said this last week, and it's important for us to read this again this week. Because Luke is daring the reader, a guy named Theophilus, and then us later, uh, 2,000 years later as we read his book. He's daring the readers of his book to check his facts. A lot of people for a long time wanted to like pretend Jesus didn't live, wanted to pretend that the writers of the gospel were not good historians, that they completely made this stuff up. And when you look at Luke's historical accuracy, it's impossible, it's really impossible to pretend that these guys didn't at least think that the things they're talking about happened. Now, you might say, well, they were wrong, they didn't really get it, they misunderstood Jesus, and that's a different conversation for a different day. But 
you at least have to look at Luke and go, this guy is giving us more facts than we need. I mean, he goes from the ruler of the land, uh, Caesar, to the, the local rulers who were, there was one high priest, but high priest kept the name and Annas continued to have power long after uh, he was out of power. And so Luke is like going down the line from, from national government, if you will, to local government. And it's like he's saying, check my facts. Pontius Pilate's reign and rule was questioned for a a long, long time and people disagreed with Luke. And then in 1961, they found a coin with uh, an inscription about him on it. 1961, 1,900-and-something years from the time Luke writes his gospel, all of a sudden he's proved true. When other historians for 1,900 years were trying to say, well, the guy was wrong, the guy was wrong, the guy was wrong. And then some archaeologist finds a little coin and says, oh, I guess Luke was right. You know, that would have been a big fine. Hopefully he didn't just pick it up like I just demonstrated with my hands, you know. Hopefully he used the brush or whatever. I mean, that's a big deal. Like 1,900 years, like, oh, he couldn't have been right, he couldn't have been right. Oh, he's right. And so Luke is like daring readers to check his facts going, look, this happened, and it happened, we get the date here of when Jesus' public ministry kind of starts up, because we know that this would have taken place about 27 to 29 AD, for those of you that like history and just want to put it in in its place. Now then it says, at the very end of this, and this part's really fascinating to me, it says, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah. And we've been introduced to John in chapter one, not something we studied together, but something we've studied in the past together. But if you go back and read the story, John is Jesus' cousin. His birth is kind of crazy. His parents have him really late in life. An angel tells his dad, your son is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Mary, the mother of Jesus, goes and visits Elizabeth, John's mom, and the baby leaps in her womb. That's kind of a big deal. And Mary, I mean, excuse me, Elizabeth, like, launches into this thing about how Mary's carrying the Messiah in her. And so here is John, son of Zechariah, Jesus' cousin, and that's who we're going to be introduced to here in this story. Now, my cousin is here today all the way from Atlanta. Jared, put your hand up. There he is. Didn't know I was going to call on him. And as you look at this story, I want you to remember this. My cousin really likes me. He's staying at my house this week, so hopefully he really likes me. Uh, But he never would say any of the stuff that's about to follow in this chapter. He, he would never inflate me like John is about to inflate his cousin. Uh, we, he's, Jared is my best friend. We've been close for a really long time. But you're going to see that John is different when it comes to his cousin. It's, it, it, he's saying something. And cousins don't just do that. Like, we have a proclivity to have a love-hate relationship with our cousins, I think. Like, it's cool because they're at Christmas parties, but we want to be the cooler one, kind of, you know what I mean? Like, we want to be better than our cousin, I think, but, but we are still glad they're there because otherwise we'd be just be hanging out with the adults, you know? I mean, that's, that's kind of how we grow up thinking about our cousin. And here's what happened when, happens when Jesus' cousin shows up on the scene. He went out into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John comes on the scene and he starts preaching about repentance. 
And the book of Luke, if you just were to read the book of Luke, which I would encourage you to do, you're going to find that the, the book of Luke is just ripe with speak and talk of repentance. Luke makes a big deal out of this idea of repentance. And the word was used in Semitic circles, Jewish circles, in order to describe a changing in mind that would lead to a changing in life. And a lot of times when we think about repentance, if you've grown up in the church, we think about being really sad that we did something wrong. Like just, you know, when you cry during a music in church, then you're like repenting. I guess that's how I had thought about it for a long, long time. But repentance is not that. that it doesn't mean be sad at all. There's, no, uh, there's nothing that says that we need to be sad to repent even. It just says, it describes something where our minds are changed about an activity in our lives, about a behavior, about something we do, and it leads to us changing that behavior so when it comes to like christianity when you become a christian it talks luke will talk about this repenting and in that moment we come from a place where we are an enemy of god and we change our mind and we accept jesus as our savior and we become a follower of jesus that's repentance if you have a sin in your life and you make a decision, you say, no, I realize that this is wrong and that God isn't like this and this is bad and this is affecting my family and this is hurting the people I love and we change our minds about it and then change how we're living, that is repentance. And so immediately Luke shows up and his job, I mean, excuse me, John shows up and his job is to prepare the way for Jesus, to let everybody know that his cousin is the Messiah, the one that has been promised for thousands of years by God to be the savior of people. And John shows up and immediately he starts preaching about repentance. And then we see this quote from Isaiah and uh, John was prophesied about a lot in the Old Testament. And we see this quote that, that Luke uses for us. Now, the interesting part, all the gospel writers quote this, but the interesting part is that Luke is the only one that's going to quote verse five for us. And in verse five, in different language, we basically see that the gospel, that the Messiah is going to come for all people. Now, this is a big deal. This is something that's interesting because John is talking to a Jewish audience. And let me just give you a little heads up, and we'll see this in just a second, too. The Jewish people thought that the Messiah, the promised one, was coming to save them. And at the time of John and Jesus, what had happened is that people had revived, the Pharisees had revived this idea of a coming Messiah. And they told people that this coming Messiah was going to start a military takeover and he was going to beat up the Romans and he was going to move them out of power and he was going to sit on a throne and reign as an earthly king. And they thought it was all about being Jewish. This guy's coming for us, from God, for us. It's coming by us, but it's coming for us. And Luke includes verse 5 as a reminder that Jesus, the promised one, the Messiah, the Christ, was coming for all people. And Luke is saying something that would have been crazy to a first century Jewish person. In fact, as we look at this story, we see some things that are just downright crazy. I mean, just things that, and this is a big part of this sermon series, and this is our last week, but I just, some things that you can't ignore. And a lot of times we do ignore, we just kind of read it and we go, when am I going to get to Jesus dying and rising again, you know, or where's that one verse that I really like that makes me feel good, you know, we kind of skip over this stuff. But there's some crazy things, like the cousin of Jesus being the prophet for Jesus, but like Luke saying, look, this guy named John he came to make the path straight for all people. 
to meet, to love, to follow the Messiah. Verses 17, excuse me, 7 through 14, it continues. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers came to him and asked, what should we do? He replied, don't exhort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So he begins by talking to the false converts which is a weird thing, a false convert for Jewish people because the Jewish people just thought that they were in. They were just part of the kingdom of God. They were just part of God's family, that they were right with God because they were Jewish. And so some people apparently were coming out and they weren't really willing to examine, to look for, to think about Jesus, really to repent or change any of their lives. But it's really easy to say like, I'll get baptized. You know, a lot of people treat Christianity this way today even. It's like, Sure, I'll go to church. I'll kind of cover my basis. I'll make sure that I pray a little bit just in case those people are kind of right. And, but there's no repentance. There's no change. There's no real connection to Jesus. And John just calls these people out. The, another book in the Bible, one of the other gospels tells us that, that he calls out the religious leaders. They're coming. They're interested. He's like, you brood of vipers. That's not a nice thing to call anybody. He's like calling them killer snakes. I mean, like, nobody likes those. Nobody ever says, oh, man, a, kill, a snake that's going to bite me. I'm so happy to see you, you know? Like, you see a puppy, you get excited. I saw a video. I didn't watch this. I just want to make that clear. But a video of a guy petting a pig was on Facebook. I see everything on Facebook. Somebody told me yesterday that their mom tags them on pictures of cats, and they don't like it. I thought that was kind of funny, and uh, I kind of want to start doing that to some people. Just put a cat picture in you. Um, but, but, like, we have these cute things, but nobody looks at a viper or a coat. Cobra, or Black Widow, a spider, I know, but nobody like, looks at these things and goes, oh, so cute, man. I'm so happy to see you. I mean, this is an insult. And he looks at me, he's like, who told you to flee from the coming wrath? And it's offensive. And then he says, don't say that your father's Abraham. Don't say you're Jewish and it's good enough. Don't say that you were born into this and that's enough. Because someone is coming that is going to bring salvation, sure, but he's also going to bring the coming wrath with him. The ax is already at the tree. You see, when Jesus came, he came to save people, but he came to save people from something. And it's ultimate destruction, it's ultimate punishment. And he looks at these people and say, don't look at your bloodline, and it's problem still today in the church. Well, I was just born a Christian, I've been a Christian forever. We don't have that in the Northwest as much. It would be much easier for all of you to be at home right now watching football. But down in the South, uh, it's like part of the culture. It's like, this is who we are. This is what we do. We're part of, we go to church. Sure, I'm a Christian. I'll check that box. And John looks at these people like, look, look, look. No, 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 no. Time out. Out of these stones, children of Abraham could be raised up. You need to repent. And the people are apparently a little bit 
confused because they're like, okay, well, if being a child of Abraham isn't good enough, what ought we to do? And he says these like super kind of crazy things. I mean, the tax collectors, this is interesting. I just learned this as I was studying for this sermon. I've known tax collectors were seen as really bad to the uh, Jewish people, uh, but I learned a little more this week. So the, the tax collectors were Jews and they would take taxes from people, this part I knew, and they would take more than they needed. But what I learned uh, for studying in th- for this sermon was that they actually were contracted out by the Roman government. And so uh, a Jewish person, or a, excuse me, a Roman person would go and they would say like, hey, I'll give you this percentage of the taxes I collected. We'll come out with this amount. And the Roman government would pick the highest bidder, the person that they thought was Best, And then they would hire Jewish people to actually go get the taxes for them. And the Jewish people, it's like a trickle up kind of deal. The more money they can get from you, the more money they can keep and still give enough money to their bosses in order that they collect a profit and still get the money to the Roman government. It's a really bad system. And so the Jewish people, I mean, think about this, your own brothers, the people that that you share a bloodline with, they are robbing you of your money in order to make a bigger profit so that they can have a higher wage and still please their bosses who are Romans, your very enemy. This whole system creates like really, really tainted, um, bad kind of relationship between anybody who collected taxes and anybody who had to pay them. And so it's interesting. This is kind of a fascinating thing. He looks at these tax collectors. He doesn't say don't do your job anymore, but he tells them to radically alter the way that they do their taxes. Don't collect. I mean, this is a bold statement. This is a huge statement. Don't collect any more than you're supposed to. Like, wait a minute. Are you going to cut my income in like a tenth? To, I, mean, I, I, buy, I mean, I'm not going to have money. I'm going to have to sell my house. I'm going to have to sell my car. I didn't have cars, but you know what I mean. Like, this is a big deal. And the soldiers, they made just enough to live on. The soldiers probably were guys that helped the tax collectors collect money. They would have really been hated, right? I mean, they're like the, they're the muscle behind the brain of the operation. And, and he looks at them and he says the same. I mean, don't get extra money because they were probably trying to get extra money because they had power. And, and be content with your pay. I mean, these are radical statements. And the cool part is, the interesting part is that Jesus will continue to make radical statements like this about how followers of the Messiah, of the Christ, of Jesus ought to operate. But we can't skip over them. I mean, the coming of Jesus, the idea of Jesus, the thought of Jesus, the presence of Jesus makes it so that we should radically alter our lives. You see, when it comes to Jesus, no casual response will do, and that is what John is saying. I mean, John isn't isn't leading anybody to salvation at this point. John isn't even really introducing his crowd out in this wilderness to Jesus. He's just preparing the way for Jesus. But even in those first moments before Jesus is famous, before people know who Jesus is, in a moment, John's actually going to have to point to Jesus and say, that's who I'm talking about. I mean, before all of that, John laid a standard and said, look, when it comes to Jesus, you can't be a casual observer. You can't be a casual responder. There is no closet Christians. There is all in or there is all out. And if you want to be a part of this kingdom, then you're going to have to radically alter the life that you live. And this is crazy. 
I mean, not even Jesus' presence. He's not even there when John is saying these things. But just the fact that he was coming makes it so that life should be lived entirely differently. It's pretty crazy. Luke 3, 15 through 18, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people, exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. In John 1, 23, we read, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. John spoke so powerfully, so well, so really different than anybody these people had ever heard that they look at him. I mean, just this is interesting. And they look at him and they're like, are you the Messiah? And in the Gospel of John, when he says no, they say, well, are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? I mean, they want to know, like, who this guy is. And all he says to them is, I am the one preparing the way for somebody else. I mean, that's not, that's not a very important-sounding job. I mean, nobody thinks about the people who prepare the way for somebody else. Nobody thinks about the person who rolled out the red carpet at the Grammys, you know? I mean, nobody goes, oh, that's the guy I want to be when I grow up, the guy that rolled out the red carpet. Nobody thinks like that. And so here we have this powerful, kind of odd, because the gospel of, of uh, Matthew tells us he wore camel hair and he ate locusts. Kind of odd, weird guy that generates a huge crowd. I mean, people are actually going out into the wilderness to see and hear this guy talk. And he's like a big deal, such a big deal that he actually divides the culture of his time between those who kind of like him and those who thought he was a bad guy. I mean, kind of, and he just, I mean, when he's asked if he's the Messiah, he just gets out of the way and says, no, no, no. My job is simply to roll out the red carpet for the one who is going to come. And then he says this, uh, this crazy, I mean, this is crazy. And, and this is not something to be glossed over when you look at Jesus. He says, I, I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. We did a whole sermon series based on that line uh, a couple years ago. A lot of you, I, I see, still have the straps of leather that we gave away to symbolize this passage of Scripture uh, on your keychains. Um, and in the first century... Slaves were the only ones who would really untie somebody else's sandals. And it was seen by slaves as the bad job, the job that nobody wanted. It's demeaning to lower yourself in that way for one. Feet were disgusting. You weren't taking a bath all the time. You're walking around in dirt. And, and this was the job nobody wanted. And John in one of the most brilliant, I think, beautiful, humble statements the world has ever known, says, I'm not even worthy to do that job for the one who's going to come. I mean, he is so far and above me that I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to untie the guy's sandals. Uh, we, we can't really get it. I mean, there's no good comparison, but... but, but just think about the power in that statement. He is so much better than me. And this is no little character. I mean, this is the, one of the great preachers of his time. We always think of 
great preachers and people that have huge followings is, is getting a little bit arrogant and then they do something stupid, right? And, and they end up with way too much money. That's how we, and John is out in the wilderness with a huge following, becoming famous, one of the great preachers of his time. And he says, I can't even untie this guy's sandals because he's so much better than me. And then he says, I baptize you with water, but, but this one who's coming, one of the reasons that he's so much better than me is that he's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. It's a way of saying that Jesus, when he comes, your response to him is going to matter. Either you're going to respond and you're going to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's something we believe as Christians. When you become a Christian, when you become a Jesus follower, then God's presence comes into you in a new and powerful way and it leads you and it guides you and it shows you all of the ways of righteousness. It teaches you how to live and shows you how you respond to certain situations. But for others... The rejection of Jesus is going to result in their destruction, their punishment. So we can baptize with fire too. Jesus isn't even famous at this point. Just think about that. Jesus isn't even famous. And this guy is making some huge, huge statements about Jesus. This famous preacher. This is not a moment that should be skipped right over. Let me get past John. Nobody cares about this guy. Let me get, let me get over here. I mean, let's get to the story of Jesus. I mean, we end up on Luke 24 before we have even read anything else. But here's this guy, his very own cousin, out in the wilderness, eating locusts, dressed in camel's hair, and, and has a huge following of people. People are traveling to the desert. It's not like he had a church in the middle of a neighborhood and it just happened to get big. They're traveling out into the desert to see him. And he's like, look, somebody's coming that's so much more powerful than me that I'm not worthy to untie his sandals and he's going to baptize with the Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. It's a way of saying some people, the winnowing fork was like the fork you'd pick up the grain and you'd throw it into the air and then the wind would take the chaff away and, and so you could get your grain out and not have any of the bad stuff and then the people would burn the chaff because it was hard to find things to burn in that culture, in that area and, and then you'd take the grain and you'd obviously sell it or you'd eat it. And he's saying, this Jesus guy, this Messiah who's coming is, is going to separate those who follow him and those who don't. He is the, the defining thing, the defining person in a person's life. Whether they follow him or not is ultimately going to determine whether they are destroyed or, or whether they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they have a relationship with God forever. These are major, major statements. And he ends, and this is just, I just find this so fascinating, by calling it good news. Because don't, a lot of times when we talk about the gospel, Christianity, and we think about the fact that some people will be punished, we're like, oh, that's, that's bad news. But John looks at it, and he's like, finally, somebody is here that can actually save some people. He can save everybody, but some people will be saved through him. It just depends on whether or not they accept him or not. And John doesn't look at the fact that people will be punished as bad news. He looks at the fact that Jesus will save those who come to him as good news. And these are crazy, crazy statements. Now here's 19 and 20 are just side notes. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of 
his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done. Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Later we know that he will be head John. Uh, and really, Luke, this doesn't happen chronologically. Luke's trying to get John out of the story. But I tried. I wanted to figure out this relationship between Herod and Herodias. And the, the Herod the Great, you may have heard of him in one of your history class. His family line looks like this. It's really complicated. It looks more like a, a tangled web then it looks like a nice you know kind of going down from family line to family line and so Herod is actually related to Herodias um uh, related to her and then she's his brother's wife and then she gets divorced and he gets divorced and they get married and John apparently thought that that was a bad idea because uh, it just sounds like a bad idea even if it's not against the law but it was against the Jewish law and Herod was part Jewish and so John rebukes him publicly and uh, Herod doesn't take kindly to that. So John gets out of this story now and we return to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Luke three twenty one through 22. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Ready for this? This is, just, this is a, something you have to pay attention to. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying. As he was praying, heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. We have a picture of this. So Jesus comes to get baptized, and uh, the first question is, why did Jesus get baptized? And the answer is, plain and simply, something that most pastors will never say to you, we don't know. We don't have a clue why Jesus gets baptized. He didn't need to repent of sin because we believe that Jesus was perfect. Uh, he didn't need to be baptized. There's no really good reason for it. But we're thankful that he did because it shows us a couple of things. First, it shows us his willingness, pay attention to this, to take up humanity's cause in salvation. You see, as he's getting dunked in the water, a baptism that was for repentance, it's as if he's saying, look, Here's why I came. I came to get caught up in the mess of your sin. I came to get caught up in the very stuff that you needed to pay for. And when he dies on a cross, handful of years later, he is saying the same thing. I came to save you from your sins. I came to take on your sins. I came so that you might be saved from everything that you have done wrong. And it's quite profound when you think about that, Jesus getting dunked in the water. I mean, he didn't need to do it, like he didn't need to go to the cross, but he does it to show, I think, what he is ultimately on earth for. And to say, I think, I think this is one of those defining moments to say, I am here to do something about your sin. I mean, as he goes down into that water, he is proclaiming, I know why I came. I know what I'm here for and I'm willing to do it. You know, it's unclear if Jesus really, as he's growing up, I mean, he's about 28 years old at this point, 29 years old, somewhere in that range. It's unclear whether or not Jesus understood what his mission would look like. But at this point right here, we don't know about before, but at this point right here in that baptism, we see at least a little symbolism of Jesus saying, I get my purpose. I get how this is going to end. Now here's the other part of, of this baptism is that in this baptism, it shows us 
the divine endorsement. We believe in a Trinitarian God. I mentioned that earlier, that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in this baptism, we see that the Father is endorsing his Son. And he does it in a couple of ways. First, the Spirit coming down. There's an endorsement from the Spirit. But through this voice as well, you are my Son whom I love with who with you, I am well pleased. Now, I want you to kind of picture the scene here. The first part of this is, is this dove. And Luke says that the dove came in bodily form, and, and it's actually unclear whether he's just really emphasizing that the spirit could be seen or whether there was a dove there. I just, if there was a dove there, this is world's coolest moment to me. This is like every hippie should have this on their wall in the history world. I mean, Jesus going down and like a dove, we've seen, this is how it's always drawn, a dove like right there floating over his head. That's when I would have followed him. I would have been done right there. Anybody that can get a dove floating. If we ever baptize somebody here and a dove comes over their head, like that's going to be an incredible moment. I'll tell you what, we're going to have that guy preach. I'm not going to preach anymore. And that's going to be the guy. Uh, but what we need to know, what we need to understand is that John actually sees and understands that the spirit comes upon Jesus in a really unique and powerful and different way in this moment. And it identifies Jesus as the son of God, the savior of the world. This is what we read in John 1, 32 through 35. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. God had told John, look, when you see the spirit coming down that's the guy I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one now check this out the next day John was there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by he said look the lamb of God there's a giant crowd and John because Jesus is not famous at this point is introducing Jesus look that's the guy I've been talking about wouldn't it be cool later as Jesus got more and more famous to be there in this defining moment and to look back I mean, like, it's like a band that's not famous and you see them when they're super small and then they get huge, right? If you know that story. And you're like, I saw them at the Roseland when there was nobody there. And this is like that Jesus moment right there. Like people don't know who he is. John is, can you imagine John having to tell people who Jesus is? And he's like, I saw the spirit. This is the Messiah. This is the guy that we're talking about, that I have been talking about. And God's voice declares things that are connected to Old Testament prophecies, but in essence, he says, this is my son. This is the one who is promised. This is the one that I have given prophecy about for thousands of years. This is the one that I declared would come and be your savior. And this is a defining moment for Jesus. Whether everybody heard that voice or not, the confidence and the clarity that this must have brought for Jesus and his mission must have driven him for the rest of his life. I mean, you may have moments where you look back and you go, I knew at that point it was my mission. I knew at that point that, that this was the girl that I would love forever. I knew at that point that this is what I needed to do with my life. I knew at that point that this was my job and I would, I would continue to do it until I retired. I knew at that point that I was good at something. You know, We have these defining moments and I think this is one of those for Jesus as his father looks down and says, look, you're my son and with you I am well pleased. I love you. 
And I just wonder, Jesus in his humanity, as he went through life, doubts crept in. Am I really doing the right thing? Is this how it's supposed to go? If he thought back to this moment, when the Spirit descended on him and prepared him and equipped him for his ministry that would start shortly after this, and a voice came from heaven and gave just an outstanding an outstanding backing, an outstanding vote of confidence for who Jesus was. You see, for a lot of people, a defining moment is a moment when we become who we are, but Jesus has been who he is for eternity. But in this moment, I think this defining moment is at a moment where Jesus sees clearly who he is. And when you look at these moments, they're crazy. I mean, these are crazy. I hope, and this is just a big part of it, I hope you just read the Bible differently because of this sermon series. The Bible is pretty good. There are parts that I don't like reading. Just let me be totally honest, where I'm like, let me get through this as fast as possible. This is terrible. But then there are parts where I'm like, how do people not like reading the Bible? How do people tell me the Bible is boring? I mean, you go back to the Old Testament, some of the stories there are incredible, and then you read things like this. And even for people who reject it and say, well, I don't believe that, it's at least interesting. I mean, you got a dove perhaps floating around a man's head and a voice coming out of heaven. That's a big deal. And a cousin who's actually willing to declare his cousin the greatest man who ever has lived. I'm going to ask Jared to take off my shoes later, and I'm going to guess he's going to say no because it's demeaning, right? But here is John declaring that about Jesus and a voice from heaven declaring this is the promised one and a dove descending upon him. This is the backstory. This is the defining moment where Jesus is shown for who Jesus is. And when you look at it, you just can't say the Bible's not interesting. And furthermore, and this is what I really believe, you can't look at this Jesus and just have kind of a, a soft reaction to him. But instead, I think you must be called for some of you to have a defining moment yourself. Because a lot of people, I think a lot of people who have followed Jesus a long time have never had a defining moment where they say, man, I'm really going to love you and I'm really going to live for you and I'm really going to care about you. And I'm really, when I read about you being beaten and, and flogged and mocked and tortured and crucified, I'm not going to act like you're some guy that I've never met, but I'm going to remember your backstory and I'm going to care about you and I'm going to think deeply on it. And I'm not going to neglect you every day and say, oh, I should read the Bible more, but I'm going to treat it as a treat to come to the word of God and learn more about this person that I love whom had these crazy moments that declared he is who he said he was. He was the savior of the world and he is the king that is to be served. You see, when you get Jesus' backstory, it calls you to a defining moment. Hey, Jesus was a guy that died. That doesn't call me to a defining moment. Jesus was this one who God the Father declared as the promised one that lived and teached and uh, taught and, and declared some crazy things and then was persecuted and, and killed. That's different. That's a real person that took on real flesh and had real moments and a real story and a real mother and earthly father that's going to that cross to save you from your sins. And I think it calls us to a defining moment. A moment where we make a decision. We say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow this guy or I'm going to reject it. I hope you don't reject it. But this is a story that ought to be rejected. It's that crazy. 
If you're not going to believe it, it ought to be rejected at least. Some people never reject or, or, or accept Jesus. And I hate that. I think that's the worst place to be. You just kind of go through life thinking you're good with Jesus, but you've never accepted him. You've never decided that he's going to be your savior, that you're going to follow him, that you're going to love him, that you're going to care about him, but you've never really rejected him either, and so you kind of feel like everything's okay. But this, these stories, they ought to make you feel something. They ought to make you care at least care enough to say, yeah, I don't believe it. And if that's you, I'd love to talk to you and try to prove it to you. Or, yeah, you can have my life, and when I read about you, and when I sing about you, and when I think about you, and when I talk about you, it's not going to be this emotionless, logical, coming from my brain, but not from my heart conversation anymore. Theodore Roosevelt said, our lives are made up of years, weeks, and days, yet each and every one of them of these, measures of time is compromised of mere moments, life-changing, life-shaping, life-defining moments, frozen in time moments that offer us insight, inspiration, and ideas that can make our lives everything we have ever hoped they could be and more. Whether we embrace these fleeting moments or instead allow them to pass by us in large measure fashions, the lives we get to live passes by in large measure fashions the lives we get to live, literally making or breaking us in the process. Far too often we allow a lifetime of moments to slip away, never once realizing what could have been or what could have been accomplished. In any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The next best thing is the wrong thing, and the worst thing you can do is nothing. Another author, an unknown author, said your life will come down to a few defining moments. When those moments come, I hope you make the right choices and leave with no regrets. You see, when we look at Jesus' backstory, it's kind of like watching the Olympics. And we can change the channel. Say, that's not, the, that's not what I want to be a part of. That's, I'll flip it. It's like on to the next thing. You can choose to reject it or you can embrace it. And I just see far too many people, I know far too many people that, that call themselves Christians they really haven't embraced the story of Jesus. They've embraced the death of Jesus. They've embraced even the resurrection of Jesus. My Redeemer lives. They don't even know Jesus. And this morning, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, I'm just calling you to a defining moment where you say, yeah, Luke records a story about a cousin declaring that he's not even worthy to tie the sandals of his cousin and then a baptism where God's voice came from heaven and the spirit descended like a dove, whatever that means, like a dove on this character and you need to have a defining moment and I hope that you accept Jesus because it will change everything for the better and I hope you will not just accept him and say sure, but you will accept him and say I'm gonna love you more, I'm gonna care about you more, I'm gonna think about you more, I'm gonna become a better friend to you. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that everybody here will have that defining moment with you. And God, I know some people have rejected you, and then they have a, a different defining moment. And I don't want anybody to think that, that once they've made a decision about you, it's over, God. Whether they've decided to follow you or reject you, God, I, I don't want them to think that it's over. But I do want every person that sits in front of me, every person who will listen online, God, 
to really take seriously these crazy stories, to really meet you, God, in a new way, and to make a decision, a life-altering decision to accept you or reject you, God. I do pray, God, that you'd stir in people's hearts just a, a sense of the reality of these stories, Lord. God, I know they're true for so many reasons. Just, I know they're true because of our relationship, because of the things you've done in me. I know they're true because of, uh, of Satan, God, and the way he fights against me following harder after you and knowing you better, God. And I know they're true, God, because of what a great historian Luke was. God, I want people to believe these stories and to care about these stories and to be excited about you because of these stories. And I pray that right now in people's hearts, God, you would just do a work. Lord, it seems that we have a Christianity in America or a false Christianity in America that just allows for us to gloss over your life as long as we prayed a prayer saying we believed in your death. But God, that leaves us just, just shadows of what you call us to be. And Lord, you know, I was telling this to my grandpa the other day, God, you know that I believe that the greatest sermon I can give is always a sermon that makes people like you better, God. Because I think when people accept your gift of salvation and they come to a place where they really care about you, Lord, most of the time they kind of know what they ought to do in life. Lord, I think if every person just took these stories seriously and really cared about you and really got excited about you and really just jumped into you and knowing you and being your friend and your follower, God, then I could stop getting up here on Sundays because they would make a concentrated effort, Lord, to know you, know your will, and to live for you. And I pray you do that. You just take us a step forward on this Sunday, God. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for coming here, for dealing with the problems and the pain and the hurts, for growing up, God. Lord, you were just a little younger than me when this happened. And this was probably a great moment for you, but I, I know, God, I've learned that at every stage of life we have difficulties and we have hurts and we have struggles, things that are outside of us, God, even, and you dealt with them all so that you could, God, so that you could, Jesus, be the Savior of our sins. I thank you, Lord, that, that when you got dunked in that water, you declared, I'm willing to be caught up in your mess. And when you, God, lived in the years after it, you still were caught up in our mess. And when you died on that cross, you died for our mess, Lord. I thank you for loving us that much. And we just say we love you too, Lord. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.